0: Scripture's for today is 3 John verses 9 through 15. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, uh, not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who wants to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate, imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends each by name.
1: Lord Jesus, we're so grateful for who you are and for how you have done the things that you have done. We're so grateful that although you are God, that you did not count equality with God something to be grasped. You did not cherish your position in itself, but you were willing to let that go and humble yourself and take the form of a human being. And having become a human being, you were willing to take the form of a servant and not a power broker. You were willing to follow and not necessarily be on top of everyone in every situation. And you were willing to obey your Father's will all the way to death on a cross, no matter what he had for you day in and day out. All you wanted was to follow your Father's will, and you did that all the way to death on a cross. And because you were pleasing to the Father, he brought you back from the dead three days later. He caused you to be exalted into his presence. He enthroned you as the high priest and eternal king over heaven and earth, both now and forevermore. And we're grateful, Jesus for how you have done what you have done. We're grateful for the example of leadership that you have provided for us. Today, as we meditate on a couple of other men and a call to a certain kind of leadership, Lord, I pray that we would have hearts to hear you and a desire to walk in your way. I pray that we would want to imitate good and not to imitate evil. So for what you have already done and for what you will do through your word now, we give you our thanks and praise in the mighty, in the merciful, in the matchless name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. At the direction of Jesus himself and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John wrote the brief letter that we now call 3rd John. He wrote it to a friend of his named Gaius who was a a child of his in the faith, probably a young man that he had led to Christ or that he had mentored in Christ or both things. And he wrote it with a great heart of warmth for him. And so with the full authority of God, John began his letter in the first four verses by warmly greeting Gaius, by telling him that he loved him. And then he expressed his prayer for Gaius. He wanted him to know that his heart was that the blessings of God would extend to every portion of Gaius's life. This was his heart, for his beloved friend, his dear child in the faith. And then he told Gaius about the joy that he felt in hearing that Gaius was actually walking in the truth. Gaius was a man who truly lived by faith in Jesus. He was a man who truly loved the church, the people of God, and was faithful in his city and to the people of God there. Gaius was a man who was engaged in the mission of the church, and when John heard of this, it thrilled his heart, and he wanted Gaius to know about it. And so in verses 5 to 8, John commended Gaius for not only walking in the truth, but also for welcoming some brothers who had been sent out from some other church into the world to preach the gospel, to edify the church, and to exalt the name of Jesus in the world. These brothers were risking all. They were risking their comfort. They were risking their physical safety. They might have been even risking their lives to preach the name of Jesus in the world, they were strangers to Gaius, but he welcomed them as his brothers in Christ because upon testing, he found out that that's exactly who they were. And John commended him for this. John essentially said to him, well done, good and faithful servants. Well done, man of God. Well done, my child in the faith. In a sense, John is saying, in the best sense of this word, Gaius, I'm proud of you. And then John went on to encourage Gaius to complete his good and godly work by investing some of his material resources in the ongoing mission of these brothers. These brothers had moved on from Gaius' church. They were now present with John. They were planning to go from there to somewhere else in the world, wherever God led them, to preach Christ. And by the way, because people in that generation went into the world and preached Christ, we believe in Christ today. If it wasn't for them, the next generation would not have believed, and if that next generation had not preached, the next one wouldn't believe, and so on and so forth until you come to us. We ought to praise God. We ought to help those who are going into the world to preach the name of Jesus and exalt him in the world. And John exhorted Gaius to do this with clear confidence that Gaius would want to do that very thing. John was filled with joy because the gospel was being preached. The name of Jesus was being exalted in the world. The kingdom of God was advancing in the world and his child in the faith was walking in the truth. John's heart was filled with joy. <clears throat> but as it was with Second John, so it is with Third John. There was a problem facing the church, and it was a serious problem. The problem, in this case, was not so much with Gaius' particular church, but it was with a church nearby to Gaius, and it had the threat of spreading. The, the problem could spread and threaten Gaius himself. It could threaten Gaius' church. In fact, I would argue that it could threaten the advancement of the gospel in that whole area. It was a serious problem, that had to be defined and confronted. And sad to say, the problem can be summarized in a single word, and it is the name of a man, Diotrephes. That name is strange to us. We don't name our children Diotrephes, but it was fairly common in that day. The more important thing for us to understand is that Diotrephes was a real man living in a real town who had seized control of a real church church, He loved power, he was wreaking havoc on the people of God, and he was a threat to the rest of the people of God in that area. And so part of why John wrote to Gaius was to warn him about what was happening. And so with this in mind, I want to begin our 31st and final sermon in the letters of John by meditating with you on verses 9 to 11 so that we can understand the nature and the seriousness of the problem facing that church. And so that we can see then in verses 11 and 12 what John's solution was for them. So if you'll look with me again at verses 9 to 11, John begins. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. You'll notice in verse 9 that John refers to a letter that he wrote to a church, probably exactly to Diotrephes' church. He probably did not send this letter to the churches in a broad sense, but to this church in particular. A handful of scholars think that he's referring to 1st or 2nd John here, but most don't think that he is, and I I agree with the most. I think John is referring to another letter that he sent to this particular church and that was not preserved for us through history. There's nothing known to us, by the way, about what this church is was about and where exactly it was, but as we just look at the details of the letter of Third John, it seems pretty obvious that it was near to Gaius. It seems pretty obvious that it was a part of a cluster of churches in that area, and the issues facing that church had the potential of spreading to other churches and, and infecting them. It's apparent from what John said that Gaius was aware of this other church. It's apparent from how he wrote that he was aware of Diotrephes. He may have even known him. But it's also apparent that Gaius did not understand what was happening in that church and he didn't understand why it was so serious. Again, this is part of why John felt compelled to write. John felt compelled to alert his dear child in the faith to a serious problem and to uh, basically enlist him, I think, to help protect The people of God. And so, with that in mind, John mentions five things about Diotrephes. And I want to walk you right through all five of these things so that we'll understand what was happening. First, you'll notice in verse 9, John says Diotrephes liked to put himself first. It's the most important thing to be known about this man. He liked to put himself first. Greek language is an amazing language in some ways is constructed in such a way that authors can move things around in a sentence in almost any way they want to, to emphasize what they want to emphasize. And usually, the more front-loaded something is, the more that the author is emphasizing that. So with that in mind, let me read to you a very literal word-by-word rendering of how the Greek reads for verse 9. Here's exactly what John wrote. I have written something to the church, but the one who loves being first among them, Diotrephes, does not receive us. John front-loaded this phrase. Before he even named Diotrephes, he said something about him. He's the one who loves to be first among them. This is the most important thing we need to understand about this man because this is actually the key to the problem. It is the heart of the problem. Now, when John writes this about him, he's not saying that Diotrephes was just a self-centered guy who liked to be the center of attention. He's not just talking about a man who somehow finds a way to to manufacture every or or to steer every conversation so that it becomes about him. That's not what he's talking about. Maybe Diotrephes was like that. But when he says that Diotrephes loved to be first among them, what he's saying is that he loved being the leader. Diotrephes had a thing for power. He had a thing for being in control. He wanted to rule the church, and we're going to see in a minute He was ruling the church with an iron fist. Diotrephes loved to be first among them. Now in every true church, there are people who in whatever measure are gifted in leadership and who get joy out of leading other people for the glory of God. In a sense, they too love being first among them, but in their case, it's not so much an ego thing, it's a glory of God thing. They enjoy the process of shepherding other people for the glory of God and the common good. This is not what Diotrephes was like at all. Diotrephes did not love exalting God by leading and serving and laying his life life down for his people, that is not what he loved. Diotrephes loved exalting himself and seizing power and controlling people for his own sake. That's what he was about. Diotrephes was not just a man who was stirring up trouble in the church. Beloved, he was a man who had seized control of the church. That's what you need to understand in your mind. He was not just a man who was a, a grumbler. Grumbling in itself is a sort of cancer in the life of a church. Grumbling is a horrible disease that can set into any church, but this disease is even worse. Here, you had a man whose very aim, whose very intention in every circumstance and every interaction was to gain power for himself. He loved power more than he loved God. Second, John says that Diotrephes would not acknowledge the authority of John and those who were serving along with him. I get this from verse nine. Practically speaking, this means that Diotrephes would not receive John's letter. John sent a letter to the church. It's possible that Diotrephes never even looked at the contents of the letter, but if he even bothered to look at the contents of the letter, he clearly would not allow it to be read to the church. He clearly would not work with others to apply it to the life of the church. And most likely what happened was that he sent the messenger back to John with the letter in hand. In those days, there was no postal service and so you had to write a letter, give it to some brother or sister in Christ and have them travel to the other place to deliver the letter. Most likely, Diotrephes said, no thank you, John can keep his letter and sent the messenger back. If that happened, John then received a full report of what was happening in that church. John then realized there's a serious problem in that church and John came to the conclusion that Diotrephes wanted nothing to do with the authority of the last remaining apostle or the authority of others who had been called in that day to rise up and lead the church. We had a serious problem in the church where Diotrephes was. Third, John says that Diotrephes was talking wicked nonsense against John and his fellow leaders. I see this in verse 10. In addition to rejecting John's authority and instructions, Diotrephes slandered him In addition to rejecting the authority of the other leaders in the church, Diotrephes slandered them. He added to his arrogance, insolence. He added to his uh, lack of willingness to submit, an, an, an absolute willingness to publicly demean people whom God himself had called. Now, it's impossible for us to know if Diotrephes went about this in a charming way, or if he went about this in a harsh way, or a little bit of both. But one way or the other, it's very clear that Diotrephes sought to discredit the leaders God had appointed over the church and then to do this, to replace those leaders with himself. Essentially, Diotrephes was seeking to remove John as an apostle and seeking to appoint himself as an apostle in John's place. I hope you understand that. We're talking about a man Was trying to remove other people from authority so that he could appoint himself to ultimate authority. And I trust that you can see that this is ultimately a sin against God. Not even Jesus himself appointed himself to the position that he holds in the kingdom of God. Do you know this? Hebrews 5, 5 and 6 says this about Jesus. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest. He is God. He could do whatever pleases him. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, God the Father, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus was appointed by God the Father. John was appointed by Jesus Diotrephes was appointed by himself. And by appointing himself, Diotrephes sinned against himself. He sinned against the church. He sinned against John. He sinned against the other leaders of the church in that day. And above all, he sinned against God who had established a certain authority structure in his church. It is no small thing when a person rises up in the life of a church and attempts to dismiss and usurp the authority that God himself has established in that place. But this is exactly what Diotrephes was doing. Fourth, John says that Diotrephes refused to welcome the brothers. And the word here for welcome in verse 10 is the same exact word as acknowledge in verse 9. So i trying to help you see behind the English into the Greek here. So look at verse 9, he will not acknowledge us. That Greek word literally means he will not receive us. When you come to verse 10 and it says that he will not welcome the brothers, it's the same exact word. He will not receive the brothers. He will not receive the apostle and his fellow leaders. He will not receive the brothers. The brothers that John is talking about here are these missionaries who had been sent into the world to preach the gospel, edify the church, and exalt the name of Jesus Christ. They were going from town to town, risking everything for the glory of Christ Christ, and the upbuilding of the church. But Diotrephes said, no thank you. I want nothing to do with John. I want nothing to do with the mission of God in the world. These people posed a threat to him, and they could not be allowed to have any place in the life of his church, not from his point of view, And whoever sent them, whoever authorized them to go into the world and preach the gospel, their authority also could not be acknowledged in the life of the church. And so Diotrephes refused to welcome them. Beloved, Diotrephes was a man who rejected the authority of God and he rejected the mission of God. And I hope that you can see how powerfully serious this is. I hope you can see what a deadly cancer this kind of leadership is in the life of the church. In addition addition to rejecting the, the leadership of God in the life of the church, he was also rejecting the wisdom of God about the mission of the church. Oh, how profoundly powerful and damaging it is when a man who is no man of God rises up in leadership in any church. Fifth, as bad as these things were, John says that Diotrephes was not content with these things. His power had not reached its end. He still had an appetite for more. All of this was not enough for him, so he did something more that I find really stunning. When he discovered anybody in the life of his church who wanted to help these brothers out When he discovered anybody who wanted to receive them, maybe give them a place to sleep, maybe give them some food to eat, maybe give them some money so that they could travel to the next town and continue their ministry. Diotrephes did everything he could to hinder these people from helping. And if he found out that they actually helped, do you see what John says he did? He excommunicated them from the church. Can you imagine that? I mean, really. Can you imagine if some missionaries came to visit us at Glory of Christ this morning? Strangers to us today, but not strangers to God. And I would not even allow us to test them and see if they're in the Lord. And I would not allow us to welcome them or bless them in any way at all. And if I found out that you were trying to help them, that I would chase you down and try to stop you. And if I couldn't stop you, I'd kick you out of the church. Can you imagine having a leader in your church that's like that? That's what Diotrephes was about. That's what he was doing. He loved power. He had seized control of the church and he was ruling the people of God with an iron fist. Beloved, this church had a very serious problem that had the potential of spreading to other churches in the area. Now we don't know why the church where Diotrephes was allowed him to rise in power. We don't know how Diotrephes really got away with this. We don't know if there's anything the church could have done to stop him or if they were culpable for his actions in any way. We don't know. But one thing we know for sure is that when John wrote to Gaius about this church, he did not have a single word of rebuke for that church. He did not. We know from John's other writings that when people need to be rebuked, he does it with gentleness, but he is not afraid to rebuke. He is not afraid to speak the truth. The people who were rising up and opposing the gospel in that time, he was not afraid to call them antichrists. John will speak the truth. And so in his silence of rebuke toward the church, I think that he thought the church was largely not responsible for what Diotrephes was doing. They were probably vulnerable people in one way or another who were being held under thumb by a wicked and powerful man. And so instead of rebuking the church, you know what John did? He vowed to come and help them. When he says, if I come, he writes that in Greek in such a way that it's clear that he really hopes to come. He expects to be able to come. He's planning to go to that town. He's not asking Gaius to go there and solve this problem. He's not asking Gaius' church to put a team together and go over there and solve this problem. John says, this one is one that I need to handle and I'm I'm gonna come. And when I come, I'm gonna rebuke this man. When I come, I'm going to expose what he's doing in the sight of everybody. I'm gonna call a public meeting and I'm gonna do what I can to humble this man. And I wanna tell you something, beloved. I praise God for the Apostle John. I praise God for his willingness to stand up to a power-grabbing man and do everything he can to keep him from doing what he was wanting to do. Standing up to men like this can be so stressful. And I say this to you from experience. Standing up to men like this can be so costly. I have encountered people like Diotrephes, even in the life of this church. It can be so costly. It can cost you sleep, it can cost you peace, it can cost you relationships, it can cost you much, but it is worth every single price that has to be paid to stand up to a person like Diotrephes and say, in the name of Jesus Christ, you may not act like this anymore. You may not usurp the control of the church, you may not. As Paul instructed Timothy, when godly leaders have to rebuke those who are trying to rise up and seize power, hopefully they will do that with gentleness, always in the hope that those people will turn, truly believe in Jesus Christ, and then live their lives in the light of the gospel. This comes from 2 Timothy chapter two. Rebuke your opponents with gentleness, Paul said to Timothy. And I trust that John, when he finally did rebuke Diotrephes, that he did it with gentleness. But beloved, I praise God that John had the courage to rebuke Diotrephes. We don't really know the rest of the story, but for the sake of conversation, I'm gonna assume that John actually went there and did this. And when he did this, you know what he showed? He showed that he feared God more than he feared any man. And because John, God's appointed leader, feared God more than he feared men, the church was the better for it. The church was the healthier for it. The gospel was the better for it. The kingdom of God continued to advance in the world. Now as for Gaius, as I said a moment ago, John's exhortation to him was not go over and talk to Diotrephes and try to solve this problem. For, for whatever reason, John knew this was a situation that he had to handle. And so look in verse 11 to see what he had to say to Diotrephes in the midst of all this. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. John is clearly saying, guys, don't be like Diotrephes. Like him, you're a leader, but unlike him, do not abuse your authority. So I want to be as clear as I can about what I'm trying to communicate to you here. We should not hear John saying in verse 11 simply that we are to imitate those who are pursuing the things of God and doing what is good in his sight. We ought to imitate people who are pursuing the things of God and are doing what's good in his sight. We ought to do that. But John is saying something more specific here. John is talking about leadership. God is, John is saying to Gaius, Gaius, as a leader over your congregation, do not imitate Diotrephes. Don't do it. Whoever is evil has never seen God, Gaius. And that describes Diotrephes, and so I don't want you to be like him. As a leader, My brother, imitate what is good and do not imitate what is evil. As a leader, use your authority for the glory of God and the good of all the sheep. Lay your life down for the people of God. No matter what it costs you, lay your life down for the people of God and trust that God will reward you for all of your hard work. The lesson of 3 John 1, 9 through 11, beloved, is a leadership lesson. And I pray that we'll learn that lesson well. Perhaps you're not a leader in the life of this church or another church, but if you have influence over anyone in any context, then you have a measure of leadership. Leadership is influence over people. That's what leadership is. So if you have influence over people in your home, influence over people in this church, influence over people at work, influence over people at school, influence over people more broadly in the world, you have some platform for leadership. And you can learn this lesson too. In your leadership, imitate what is good. Do not imitate what is evil. In your leadership, do not love being first among them, but love it when God is first among them. Love using what God has put in your hands to serve others for the glory of his name. That's the lesson of 1 John 9 to 11. Now, when John writes at the end of verse 11, whoever does good is from God, I wanna be clear that he uses a verb that really means whoever continually does good is from God. He's talking about a way of life here. He's not just talking about isolated actions. He's not just talking about a moment of time. He's saying when you see a leader whose way of life is generally characterized by doing good for the glory of God and the good of others, imitate that person because that person knows God. But when you see a leader, guys, who does evil, continually does evil, as a way of life does evil, when you see a man like Diotrephes, here's what you need to conclude about him, he has never seen God. And when John says he has never seen God, he means that he does not know God, that's what he means. Beloved, the most sobering thing that John really has to say about Diotrephes is that despite the fact that he had power in the church, he was not a believer, he did not know God. All of the fruit of the tree of his life was saying that he had nothing to do with Jesus. He had never seen God. It's one thing when a truly redeemed man struggles with his flesh in the course of leadership in the life of a church. Every true leader in the life of a church struggles with his flesh because none of us is fully sanctified. But Diotrephes was living in such a way as to prove he had never seen God. He did not know the Lord Jesus Christ. He may have used his words, he may have even used his name, but he did not know him. And the things he was doing were not the will of God in Christ, they were not. This is the most devastating thing, I think, that John has to say about him. And with that in mind, he's talking to Gaius as a leader and saying, don't be like him. Above all things in your life, Gaius, know the Lord Jesus Christ, know him, and then let your leadership flow out of the reality of that relationship. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God, but whoever does evil has not seen God. This leads us to verse 12, where John provides Gaius and us with a more positive example. Look what he writes there, verse 12. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. We know even less about Demetrius than we do about Diotrephes, but a number of leading Bible scholars think that he was probably the guy who delivered John's letter to this church, to Gaius' church. As I said, there was no postal service, so when John wrote a letter, he had to give it to someone, and that person had to deliver it. Demetrius may well have been the guy who handed this letter to Gaius. And if that's the case, then John was commending him as a man of God and also as a messenger. He was saying, Gaius, you can trust this man you can trust him. It's probable that Gaius actually knew Demetrius before this, but for whatever reason, John really wanted to make sure that he understood that Demetrius was a true man of God, that he was commendable, that he should be received, and that he should be imitated. John has three things to say about him. And I'll tell you, if these are the only three things that anybody ever had to say about me in the presence of God, that would be more than enough for me. We know almost nothing about Demetrius, but what we're about to hear is enough. First of all, John says, everybody speaks well of this guy. Everybody gives a good testimony about him. I take this to mean that everybody looks at Demetrius' life and says, now there's a man, despite his flaws, who truly loves God, who truly loves the people of God, and who is truly engaged in the mission of God in the world. Everyone gave a good report about Demetrius. Second, John says something that I think is just amazing. He says even the truth itself gives a good testimony about Demetrius. Now what does that mean? I think that means that when Demetrius is exposed before the people of God and all of his works are broadly seen, That everybody will see that despite his flaws, despite his struggles with sin, despite the process of sanctification that he had to go through and endure at times, he truly loved God. He truly loved the people of God. He truly loved the mission of God and engaged in that mission every day of his life. Demetrius was a true man of God. And when the truth is revealed, the truth will actually testify to him, can that be said of you? If everything that's true of you was exposed in front of everybody right now, would the truth testify for you, especially with regard to your leadership over people? Well, that's what was true of Demetrius, and I think John is clearly saying, beloved, my beloved friend Gaius, imitate him, be like him. Let the truth of God be the truth of your life. Finally, John says, in addition to all this, I want to add my testimony for him too. And the leaders that are with me want to add their testimony for him. We vouch for Demetrius. And you know that our testimony is true, he says to Gaius. And so again, he's basically trying to establish the trustworthiness of this man named Demetrius. We don't know much about this man at all, but what we know is enough. He was a true man of God. And again, I think John is clearly saying, beloved, Do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good, like Demetrius, whoever follows in the ways of God, by the grace of God, and by the power of God, is from God. Imitate him. Whoever does evil, like Diotrephes, no matter what they say, no matter what they claim, has not seen God, because they do not know God. And so John is exhorting him, and I think he's exhorting us, to be like Demetrius, and not to be like Diotrephes. Beloved, I've never personally met a leader that's as extremely evil as diatrophies. I'm sure they're out there. But instead of having to only think about the extreme of how this can work itself out, let's think more about the subtleties of how this can work out when a fleshly, self-centered person who loves being first among them rises to leadership in the church. Just think about that and think about that propensity inside of your own heart It's easy to point to others. It's much harder to examine yourself. Think about this propensity in your own heart and just deny it. Deny it, forsake it, renounce it. If you struggle with this kind of desire for power, confess it to God and pray for grace, but then also think about people who like Demetrius, who of course are flawed human beings, but who truly love God, who truly love the church, who truly love the mission of God. Be like them. Imitate them. Walk in their way. Use your influence for the glory of God and the good of whoever you are leading. As was the case in his second letter, John had much more that he wanted to say, but he longed to wait and speak face to face with his beloved friend Gaius and with the church he served. And so instead of writing any more, he just concluded like this in verses 13 to 15. I had much to write to you, much on his mind he's only barely scratched the surface of what he actually had to say but I would rather not write with pen and ink I hope to see you soon and we will talk face to face peace be to you the friends greet you greet the friends each by name as I shared in my final message on 2nd John I see much in John's desire to wait and talk face to face let me just point out two things John's desire to wait and speak face to face demonstrates his conviction that the gospel is profoundly personal and not merely institutional or informational. John wasn't writing simply to solve the problem of a growing organization in the world. John was not writing as the leader of an institution. And John was not writing simply to communicate information. John had that on his heart, Gaius needed to know some things, of course, but this was not the heart of his message. This is not the heart of Christianity. John knew that Christianity is profoundly relational. It is incarnational. And because it was possible, he decided to put down his pen and wait for the day when he could talk to his friend and his church face to face. He wanted to incarnate among them, if you will. And I pray that we'll have eyes to see not just John's desire, but what's behind his desire. I pray that we'll understand the profoundly relational nature of the gospel. Further, John's desire to wait and see Gaius and the church face-to-face demonstrates his confidence in the gospel. The issues with Diotrephes were very serious. I trust you can see that. You don't even need to know much about the life of any church to see that. Surely, John had a sense of urgency that this problem had to be confronted, this problem had to be solved, but he couldn't get there right away. And for whatever reason, he didn't think it was best to send Gaius or some team of others. And so by faith in Jesus Christ, he put down his pen and he waited. Here's what I see behind that. He trusted that the good shepherd of the sheep would protect the church that was being controlled by a Diotrephes. In that congregation, there were true believers. There were true believers in that congregation. John knew that until he could get there, the great shepherd over all the sheep would take care of them. And this shows me that he has tremendous faith in Jesus Christ. He has tremendous faith in the gospel. John knew that as the last living apostle, he still had a role to play in the world and he knew that he had a specific role he had to play in this situation, but he did not overblow his role. He trusted in the Lord. As Ethan said a little earlier in the service, this coming Friday, we're going to be hopping on a plane and going over to Romania for the ninth of nine sessions with the Romanian church in the north part of the country there. And while I'm excited to be there to close out a, a three-year stint of education, I do also want you to know there are some issues in the church that are serious and painful. I've, I've come mainly through email exchanges with these brothers to love them and to know more about them. And I don't wanna go into the details, but there are struggles in their churches just like there are struggles in any of our churches. And so as we go... I don't want to speak for Ethan, but I will tell you in my heart I go with joy and I go with a sense of heaviness because I'm, I'm en- en- enjoying the idea of going to be with people who I love to celebrate the gospel with them and to relish the book of 2 Timothy with them. And yet I feel a kind of weight because I feel the, the power of the pain that they're experiencing with some of the dynamics in the church. But here's what I know for sure. God is sending Ethan and I and another brother that's going along with us to be part of what he's doing in these churches in this part of Romania. We are not the end-all be-all to what's happening there. We have a part to play, but we are not the shepherd over the church. Jesus has been leading his church for centuries in that country. Believer after believer after believer has been watched over by Jesus Christ in the place that we now call Romania. And he's gonna watch over his church now. And he's gonna watch over his church tomorrow. Yes, we're gonna go and we have our part to play. But in a sense, we can put down our pen and trust the Lord that when we get there, he will make our assignments clear and he will accomplish his will. But in the meantime, we can put the fullness of our faith in him that he will watch over the church. We can put the fullness of our faith in him that all of the money and time that TLI has invested in this part of the world over the last three years was not for nothing, but that it was for something and God will use it because he is the good, in fact, the great shepherd over his people. Beloved, I see so much in John's willingness to wait and meet with these people face to face and I encourage you to ponder that more yourself. In this sure hope, John drew his third letter to a close by extending the peace of God in Christ to his dear friend by communicating the greetings of his church to Gaius. The friends here greet you. The the cherished friends of ours and of yours in the Lord Jesus Christ send their greetings to you and then he commanded Gaius to do something in a very particular way. He commanded Gaius to greet every single person in his church by name. And I think that John actually wanted it to be done that way. I think that John wanted to help the church understand the extent and profundity of the love of God in Christ. And so he said, Gaius, greet every single person in your church by name, from us to them. So I don't know how Gaius carried out this directive. I would love to hear. But I thought a lot about this this week. If I was in his shoes, I would wait until we were in a gathering like this, and I don't care how many people are there, I don't care how much time it would take, I think that I would call out every single person by name and express the greetings of John and the other leaders to them. I think that I would say, Kim and Mike and Vicky and Asa and Jesse and every single one of you, John and those who are with him greet you by name in the name of Jesus Christ because I think John wanted to communicate to the church the personal and profoundly relational nature of the gospel. I really think he wanted them not only to understand this, but to feel it in power. He wanted them to feel named by the Lord. He wanted them to feel named by the apostle. He wanted them to understand that they were seen, that they were known, that they were indeed a part of the body of Christ. I can't prove all that with certainty, but I just think John meant every single word he said. And I think that when he said, Greet them by name, he meant it. And so I encourage you to ponder that and ponder the implications that it has for us because I think part of what we need to learn, I said it so many times in John's letters, but the gospel is profoundly relational and we need to press beyond superficial relationships with each other and learn truly what it means to believe in Jesus Christ and to love one another. I pray that the Lord will help us as we press into these things. With this, the third letter of John comes to an end. And with this, our series on the letters of John also comes to an end. So let's take a few minutes to pray and give thanks to God for what he has done among us. Let's pray and ask him for help in applying these things. So I wanna open us in prayer and I'm just gonna give you some space to pray. If you'd like to pray in your hearts, that's fine. If you'd like to pray out loud, please pray nice and loud so that we can hear you. And then in a moment, I'll close us. Let's go to prayer. Our God and Father, we thank you so much for calling John to yourself. He was just a fisherman by the shores of Galilee, and you called him to yourself, and you empowered him to do things that he could never have imagined, and we're so grateful for that. We're so grateful that you caused him to write 1 John, and then 2 John, and then 3 John. We're so grateful that you preserved his words for us so that we could spend the better part of a year meditating on what he had to say there. And I pray now, Father, that you would help us as we reflect on this last year. I pray that you would help us to remember what we have learned. And I pray that you would give us the power to apply what we have learned. Oh, Father, work in our midst through the words that you inspired the Apostle John to write. Again, our Father, we give you our thanks and praise and we pray for your strength to apply these things in the mighty, the merciful the matchless name of Jesus Christ, the good shepherd of the church, we pray. Amen.